LifeSpring number 207, the fifth quarter, part one. The LifeSpring show is brought to you by Steve Webb. <laughs> that would be me, the guy with the friendly voice. If you, your business, your church, or other organization are looking for a voice to represent you for radio or TV commercials, business presentations, or other types of narration, drop me a line at studio at theguywiththefriendlyvoice.com. Hello and welcome to LifeSpring. So good to have you with me today. Have I got another compelling story to share with you today. I've gotten so many great comments from you about Ellie Collins from shows 204, 5, and 6 and how inspiring is her story of escape from human trafficking and other types of abuse. How God is so amazing to have given her the grace to overcome and become an amazing woman of God. Thank you for the email and the comments. another story that will grab your heart and then, I think, ultimately encourage you to praise God. It's the story of the Abadi family, husband Stephen and his wife Mary Ann, and their children Adam, Rachel, John, and Luke. If you're from the Atlanta, Georgia area or from the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina, you are probably well aware of who these amazing people are. I had not heard of them until receiving a pre-release DVD of the film that tells what happened to them in February of 2005. The name of the film is The Fifth Quarter, and when I watched it, I was gripped in a way I have never been gripped by a movie before. Listen to this short introduction to the movie. They're honoring John's brother, Luke, number five, calling the fourth quarter the fifth quarter. The Fifth Quarter is an inspiring true story about a family coming together after a devastating accident. I love you forever, little brother. One son dedicates his life to his brother's memory and ends up an unlikely champion. Background action. It has all the elements that make a great movie. You like the characters and you feel for the family. And then there is this spirit that revolves around a sport. We just all love that. Right here, right now, we gotta make something happen. 
Wake Forest was expected to come in last, but led by John Abadi, ended up as conference champions. It's a story we hold very sacred to our hearts, and just to share it with other people was, was hard at first, and when we discussed it, we, we felt like it would help other people, so that's why we went ahead and did it. If the story was going to be told, it had to be true to how events actually unfolded. That's my son! I just want to be with him! The scenes that I wrote, which were based in great detail on hundreds of hours of conversation and interviews that I had with the Abadi family, I didn't just have the information, but I had the inflection of their voices and the emotions on their faces and the way that they interacted and spoke to each other. When we met him, we really felt connected to him and trusted him because obviously we were going to bear our soul and our lives to him and, and expect that he would put this whole thing together in a script. But we trusted him from the very first day, and he's not disappointed us at all. Director Rick Bieber's attention to detail paid off in spades for the actors. You cared so much for them and what they had been through. It revealed so much about who these people really were, rather than just reading a script. He's just not coming back. <sighs> Under Georgia law, meets the requirements for being brain dead. The fact that they opened up their hearts and their story to be told into a movie is, is pretty brave. You know, it's, it's really an amazing thing. Veteran actor Aidan Quinn was instantly touched by the role. I knew when I read it, I would have to do this part. The story is just so transformative. It's the power of love in a family and what a family goes through when they lose one of their members and how they deal with it, particularly when it's a very young person. I dream of Luke. Marianne, he's here. I can feel him. I smell him. Aiden Quinn, I think, is really one of our great film actors. You believe everything that he does. You read all the emotions in his face. He's just very soulful and just incredibly real all the time. Quinn's portrayal was uncannily close to the real thing. To watch him play me and what happened, it's kind of surreal because he has captured my mannerisms and the words that I said back then were coming out of his mouth. I know you've been playing for Luke all year, but for this game, I want you to play for you. Andy McDowell has just tremendous grace and dignity. I think that this performance on her part has great strength. I'm portraying someone that lived a very real and true difficult story and so my goal has been to give it justice and to do a good job. I felt huge responsibility to Marianne to not mess this up. To me that meant everything, that she was so respectful and tender about that. I tried to clean his room today. You know, I haven't touched it since he left. For Merriman, playing John Abadi was an emotional roller coaster. Through love of the family and love of the game, he bows back and changes his lifestyle and, and changes as a person. You just love to watch him and feel great sympathy and affection for him. Everything you do should be for you and for Luke. You've got to start living for two, man. Abadi's real-life trainer, Steve Uriah, plays himself in the film. In that time, we discussed how he'd carry his brother's soul and how everything was. Not anymore for him. John, you can't do this anymore. I agree with you. That's why you're doing it for Luke. Three, two, one. Now he's proud. Everyone drew inspiration from a very special source, 
the driving spirit of Luca Bade. I had a big scene and I was like, come on, Luca. I said, I need you, buddy. I need you today because more angels, the better. And Aiden said the same thing. He goes, I asked Luke, you know, Luke, just be with me today, you know, help me stay strong. We'll do a full rehearsal. We're shooting outside, recreating many of the football games that the team participated in. The guys are having a great time throwing the ball, rolling around the turf. It's unbelievable to get to play on the Wake Forest field. The main thing for me has been the jerseys. When you strap on that uniform, you become your character. You become John. That's why you're here, right? That's why you got a scholarship. I go earn it. Have someone play you and ask you what you did on this play and that type of stuff's been crazy. The fifth quarter is a story about hope and about pushing ahead, even when life has dealt us a tough hand. You know, I think it's an incredible story that is being told, not just the tragedy of what happened to Luke and with our family, but the incredible inspiration that our son Luke gave to his brother John. Luke was with you today, I know he was. This is for Luke. I think we all want our hearts to be touched. I think great movies do that. They make you laugh, they make you cry, and they make you feel something complex and deep. And at the same time, we're a country that loves great sports. We love the camaraderie, we love the whole team spirit, we love the opportunity to express big emotion. My hope is that the movie continues keeping Luke's spirit alive and his memory alive. By the way, if you'd like to watch the video of that promo, I'll have it on the show notes page at lifespringpodcast.com. I highly recommend you swing on over there to the website and watch it. So today I have for you part one of a conversation I had with Stephen and Marianne Abadi just a few days ago. Marianne was at home, and Stephen was out of town on a business trip, and through the wonders of Skype, we were able to put together a conference call, and I want to play it for you right now. So I am right now with Marianne and Stephen Abate, the mother and father, the real mother and father of Luke Abate, which is talked about in the movie that I just told you about. So Marianne, Stephen, thank you so much for being a part of the LifeSpring show today. Thanks for having us. The story of the fifth quarter and the story of your your family is so important. And uh, I'm just so glad that you've agreed to be on the show today. I have to say that as the father of three sons... I cannot imagine going through a loss like you've had in your family. And my heart really, really goes out to you. What has happened in your life must have shaken you to your very core. Yes. I'm, I'm quite sure that there's probably not a day that goes by that you don't think about Luke. And you know, I, I've lost important people in my life, but never a child. What has made you decide to open up your lives to the world with this story? It's, it's got to be painful. Very it's very painful, and I personally, you know, I've struggled with that, and it scares me to put the story that, you know, that everyone in, that's left behind holds so dear to our hearts, but hopefully, you know, we can help other people through, you know, there are other parents. My story, our story, is not unusual. It, it You know, to us, it's it's special to us, but this happens all over the United States every day, that parents lose their children, and we hope that maybe we could, you know, validate their grief, and, you know, it's a story of hope for anybody who's lost or gone through something that's broken their hearts, 
that, you know, that you can go on. So that's kind of, you know, kind of my motivation for doing this. I don't know about Steve. Yeah. Stephen, what about it? Well, you know, for me at first, um, when we were approached by Rick Bieber, the writer, producer, director of the fifth quarter, it was, for me, it was a way to honor Luke and keep his memory alive. But as we, you know, got into um, writing the script and producing and filming the movie, uh, it took on a whole new meaning, not just uh, in Luke's remembrance, but, you know, for us as a family, we feel like the movie is so important to tell the communities about teenage uh, reckless driving and the consequences that come out of those um, recklessnesses that they may have while they're in the car, as well as organ donation, because, you know, Luke, in his... uh, passing gave life to five other people and um you know that is so significant sure uh, and just spreading the word of uh you know talking about organ donation within your family you know when when Marianne took Luke to get his driver's permit just 6 months before his death and the question was asked do you want to be an organ donator he really didn't know what that meant and his mom explained it to him and he didn't hesitate he said absolutely uh, of course none of us thought just a short time later that we'd have to really come to making that decision. Right. Well, of course not. Uh, that's that's yeah. just, it, it, it's it's a cliche, but it's every parent's worst nightmare. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. What a wonderful gift to be able to give, though, uh, the gift of life like that. Tell me about Luke. Uh, what kind of boy was he? Uh, <laughs> he was the baby of the family, right? Yes. And he was fun. <laughs> and he was such an out-of-the-box kind of a person um, you know, he just looked at life and he lived it to the fullest. You know, he was a person that loved to gather people. Um, you know, we today even laugh about um, how much he gathered kids from the time he was in prob- when we moved here in first grade. He would gather kids to play baseball and then football. It just depended on the season, basketball. And our grass always had, you know, no grass where home plate was. <laughs> And he just loved people, and he had a way of um, just bringing people together, and they had a good time together, and um, he had a big heart, and he was generous, and, you know, when somebody that big leaves your life, any of your children, it just leaves this huge hole, you know, in your home and the laughter and all of that, so. Right. Right. Now, did he get along well with his brothers and with Rachel? Oh, yeah. Um, You know, Luke looked up to both Adam and John, as well as Rachel. Um, With with John and Adam, you know, John was very much into sports, and and Luke, uh, you know, watched John play all his life and gravitated to sports like like John uh, was into and and just, you know, mimicked John in every way. I Uh mean, in first grade, he would wear... You know, John's clothes to school, I'm sure people thought we were paupers because, you know, he, he wore these oversized clothes, but he refused to wear his own clothes. Yeah. And then when it came to his brother Adam, uh, when Adam was away at college, you know, Luke used to call him for help on his homework. Adam, you know, graduated from University of Georgia with a 4.0, and he's in law school there. So, awesome. you know, he, he loved his brothers for, you know, their various strengths. They always all got along. And when it comes to Rachel, you know, Rachel is Adam's twin, um, oh, they were born, that. yeah, and they were born preterm. She is in a wheelchair, and um, Luke was kind of her special caregiver. I mean, he used to always go out his way to take care of her, or 
push her wheelchair, uh, make sure that or she was always her. included. Or what? Or tease her in a fun kind of way. Or you know, he used her, to yeah. love to twirl her wheelchair and, you know, turn her. He used to make her laugh. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. So it looked in the movie as if Rachel had some sort of a, a, a mental, uh, is she slow? Or I don't know what the correct, politically correct thing to say is. What is the deal with Rachel? Well, Rachel has, um, she was born at 27 weeks premature, and she has cerebral palsy, which okay. is normally a, a static condition, you know, from a, a time of birth um, incident. She yeah. had a bleed. Uh-huh. And okay. uh, so she's, she's probably, uh, you know, she's not up to, to, to par of a 27-year-old, but, you know, her strength is in communications. Uh, uh-huh. She communicates well in her social abilities. She was a uh, homecoming queen of her, of her high school, a very large school, and just always very... Uh, much involved and loved by your friends. Okay, all right. I have a cousin who is uh, uh, cerebral palsy, and it it seems to uh, manifest itself differently in different people, and so that's absolutely why, yeah yeah. Okay. yeah. Rachel's more physically involved, you know, as far as yeah. she can't she can't walk and okay. can't do a lot of the daily living type activities that you know you and I would do. Right. But uh, as far as her spirit and her sense of uh, humor, she's all there. Well, that really came through in the movie too. Yeah. yeah, she really uh, seemed like a real sweetheart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she is. Okay. Well, and, and it was hard for her too to be at you know the hospital and stuff because as a young child she had so many orthopedic surgeries and you know she had a heart condition that had to be repaired and you know the hospital doesn't hold really good memories for her mm. so we were really careful as to how far, you know, as much as we wanted her to be able to see Luke and to say goodbye to Luke, we also had to consider her, you know, emotional stability as far as bringing back what she had been through because hospitals are very unhappy places for her. Mm -hmm. So so how did she do? I mean... She did fine. You know, we really, until we knew, you know, what the full status of uh, Luke's injuries were, you know, we didn't really have her in the hospital the first 24 hours, but once we knew, you know, how severe this was and that, um, you know, Luke was not coming back, we, you know, we had her brought to the hospital and, okay. you know, she was there with us um, and our family and friends as we, you know, made the tough decisions and, and had to say goodbye to Luke. Right. Now, yeah. in the movie, it made it look as if from the time that he was checked in until the time that they came and, and you had to tell him goodbye, that it, it was a very short amount of time. How many days was it? The accident um, was on February the 13th, uh, sometime after 6. And uh, Luke passed away. He went down to surgery uh, on the 15th at about 6.30 p.m. So, okay. you know, it was about 48 hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, Monday through Wednesday. Oh, how quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the accident. What happened? Well, I'll start first. Um, it was uh, a Monday evening, and uh, we normally would get a call from Luke after it happened to be lacrosse, the sport he was involved in, you know, asking for a ride home or letting us know that he would be coming home with, you know, a person that we had okayed in the past that he'd drive with. And that night we hadn't heard from him, and it was about 6.30, 6.45. We, we had just sat down um, to get, you know, dinner going. And uh, the phone rang, and it was uh, one of Luke's friends letting us know there had been an accident. And they didn't know how bad it was, but, you know, we needed to, to get there. And um, so apparently the driver who um, had invited Luke uh, to take Luke home 
with three other, uh, I guess there were five altogether in the car, took the boys, rather than taking them home, took them down a very hilly road, a narrow hilly road uh, near where we live. And um, he had done this before, and his you know, apparently his motive was to scare the kids in the back seat by having the car go airborne over the, the bumps. And this particular time, uh, he was going about over 90 miles an hour, according to the the police records, and had lost control, and the car went down a 70-foot embankment and rolled a number of times. Luke was sitting in the rear right passenger side, which is where most of the impact took place, and so that, you know, he had severe brain trauma and uh, many broken bones, um, you know, from that that accident. Right. Just tragic. Very. It should never happen. It was one of those things that... uh, you know, it was a it was a child who uh, made a very bad decision, didn't realize uh, or didn't think about the consequences that could happen uh, from you know his decision to to do this. And um, you know, Luke should be alive today uh, because this this wasn't you know just did not have to happen. So, how old was the driver? He was a, a couple weeks shy of his 17th birthday. Yeah, he was an upperclassman who Luke didn't know very well, but you know was uh, part of the team. So I've, I've heard that there are studies that show that uh, kids that age really don't even quite have the capacity to understand the consequences of their actions. They don't think that far ahead. You know? Well, I, I, I don't know about the studies, but certainly, you know, in this case, um, there was a pattern with this driver, and he had done this before. And, uh, you know, I think us as parents, um, you know, have to realize when we give our child a turbocharged BMW that uh, maybe that's not a good thing it's mm. at 16 and a half years old yeah. but I think you know at that age they certainly um, are aware of the dangers of driving because I mean we're, we're all aware of it because we see what happens every day you know on the news sure. um, well either that or you know I think too that parents probably need to you know soul search too you know children don't read at the same time they don't walk at the same time and I don't think we all reach you know, emotional maturity at the same time that, you know, as hard as it is maybe to not give our kids or let them get their license at 16, you know, maybe we all as a society need to look at the age. Maybe 16 isn't the right age. You know, maybe we need to go to 17. I don't know. But, you know, just because it's the law that you can get it, maybe it's not right for some kids, you know, because emotional maturity is kind of an individual thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. As a matter of fact, in my home, uh, none of my boys have driven at 16. I told all of them that uh, 18 was the age. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a tragic thing. But shortly after my oldest boy's 16th birthday, uh, some of his friends were killed in an accident, much like what happened to Luke. And, you know, I didn't have to say anything, but he knew that, uh, you know, what I had said was right. That, you know, kids at that age, they're, uh, the accident statistics are greatly uh, reflective of the fact that they don't make the best decisions. They don't. Right. And, you know, hindsight, if, uh, gosh, if I had to do it all over again, well, of course, uh, I would never let any of my kids ride with anybody but an adult sure. or ourselves. Uh, no matter how much they pleaded or begged, um, because you just don't know how somebody else is going to react or take care of the people who are driving in their car, what they're responsible for. Sure. And, um, you know, certainly all of us can have accidents and, and things can happen, but 
when you do something this purposeful to go down a road that is isolated, uh, very narrow, very hilly. I mean, you're on that road for one reason, and it's 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 they're they're not they're not any good reasons. Right. Right. You yeah, know. Yeah. So, what happened to the other occupants of the car? Well, um, Luke was the only one who uh, you know had a fatality. Uh, not that we wish that on any other of the parents and the kids in the car, because certainly we're grateful for uh, them all being alive. The sure. the kid in the middle seat next to Luke uh, had a severe broken back and has since recovered. And then the the, the other uh, boy who was uh, on the left side rear had uh, a broken shoulder and arm and. Uh, Believe it or not, the the two front seat passengers, the driver and the passenger, walked away with just a few scratches. Wow, golly, just never know. No, yeah. yeah. So, Marianne, there's a scene in the film where the two of you are in the hospital by Luke's bedside, and mm-hmm. this is shortly after you arrive, and someone hands you a Bible and tells you to talk to your boy. Right. It it's not made clear who those two guys were that were with you. Who who was that? Well, actually, they play themselves. Um, The one who hands the Bible to me is the pastor of our church, um, Westridge, and he, of course, came. And the other gentleman was, um, he is a pastor as well and a good friend of ours. And he was also, you know, his son was involved with the lacrosse team, and he was kind of the chaplain of the lacrosse team. And um, so, yeah, they played themselves and you know, was so grateful to have them there yeah, yeah. because it's such a hard time and to try to even look at something like that through the eyes of faith is, is challenging. Well, so let's talk about that. Talk to me about your faith. It's been tested. Yeah. <laughs> Very much tested. I, um, you know, at that moment in the hospital, you know, of course the movie is 90 minutes. So, you know, of course, when we got there, we talked to Luke and we talked how much we loved him. And, you know, you hear that about patients, you don't know when they're in a coma, whether they can hear. And I didn't want him to hear me be so upset. So that's when I did ask, you know, got the Bible and began to read scripture because I do know that, you know, God's Word never returns void, and it's comforting. But, you know, it was a really hard moment. It was a hard time. And, you know, we were both kind of numb in the hospital, but as, you know, you bury your son and you begin to try to reconstruct a life without somebody you so deeply love that, you know, that's when the shock, at least for me, wore off and the pain set in. And grace is sufficient, but oh my goodness, it does not anesthetize pain. And just to be in that raw place of pain and and asking why, and just as Steve said, you know, not that we would wish this on anybody, but to your child being the only one to die, you're like, well, God, you know, why didn't you protect him too? Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's hard, you know, and to grapple with all of that, um, you know, I've kind of reached a place that at least we never lost our faith. It was troubled and it was shaken, but, you know, you just keep coming back to, you know, why and bringing, I've kept bringing my heart to God and, you know, there was a turning point in the movie, you know, it is portrayed where John 
comes to me after, you know, I had self-destructive, you know, I didn't realize how destructive I could be. And when I was that injured, I realized that I had self-destructive behaviors. And he came to me and says, you know, mom, we, you know, I lost it, but I don't want to lose my mom too. That was just such a huge moment for me. You know, I feel like, God spoke through my son. He knew how to speak to me, and it was through one of my kids. And that was, it wasn't like I was okay, but at that point, I knew that I wanted to shift where I was looking for comfort. And I knew that I needed to do this with God. You know, it's like God said, through my spirit, you know, you can do this your own way and you're going to make a mess of it, or you can let me do it through you. And it's not like I was all better, but there was at least a shift in my soul Mm -hmm. that I knew I needed to live for the five people or the four other people that were still on this earth and I couldn't do it alone. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephen, what about you? How did you cope? Well, you know, when this all first happened, I, I fell apart, and Marianne was really the strong one at the hospital. And as she uh, indicated, you know, about a week after, we kind of reversed roles, and I realized that, you know, I had to be strong for my family, and I saw what uh, what they were going through. And, um, you know, my faith had always been strong, and I certainly believe, uh, believed and still believe in God. But, you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, I've been angry and very angry at him for not understanding, you know, why this happened and what the purpose was. And, you know, I've realized that it's it's okay to be angry at God because he's okay with that. Yes. As long as we still have uh, our hope and faith and believe in him. Um, it's been a, a long journey. It's been five years, and I'm still, um, still going along that journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the pain seems to be a little duller every day, but it's still there. Of course. And, um, you know, I think of Luke and, you know, my heart aches every second of the day knowing that, you know, he's not with us. But what I have realized over the last, you know, five years of this process that, you know, even though God didn't um, make this happen, he allowed it to happen for a reason. And I I think I'm learning that, um, you know, as bad as this is and as horrible as we feel, as much as we didn't want this to happen, we've realized that we, we're going to make some good out of this horrible situation. Right. And, you know, in essence, the movie, um, hopefully what's revealed in the movie through the, through the script of family and faith and a family coming together and how uh, a love of family and how, you know, one brother wants to honor his other brother who is not here on earth. He influences a whole team uh, to do greatness. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, there's a reason for everything. And I used to really love that saying, I don't like it so much anymore, yeah. but, uh, it's so true that, uh, you know, there is a reason for everything. And, and even though, you know, we would want Luke here with us uh, more than anything in the world, I'd give up my life and everything, uh, in my life, um, to have me in his place yes. rather than him. Uh, we want to make some good of it and hopefully share with others, to not go through perhaps the same way we've gone through it. Yeah, I understand very much your point about being angry at God, and and, and that's okay. Um, I've I've talked to people about that before. I've said, you know, God is a big God, and and He can take our anger. He understands. And um, 
not to, at all to equate what happened to you with, with my experience, but when I was 16, I had a, a girlfriend who was also 16, and she died from cancer. And mm. there were literally, literally thousands of people around the world praying for her. She was very well known in, in certain circles. And um, she died anyway. And I was so angry at God, and I was a new Christian at the time, and it was literally years before I prayed again, because I had in my mind that, well, evidently prayer doesn't do anything, so why pray? Yeah. And so, yeah, I understand the, the anger. Every day, uh, as you say, the pain does get a little bit duller, but it never goes completely away. No. And yeah. uh, it's just, you know, you do try to make the very best out of it and ask God to, um, to guide you and, and help you to see what it is, um, you know, how, how to go on from here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think God is a mystery. His ways are still a mystery, and we can't explain everything. Mm -hmm. And learning to live within the mystery of that is, is an act of faith. You know, it may be a faith that you're, you know, grappling and holding and, you know, clinging and asking and questioning, but, you know, there are just some things in this world that we will never be able to completely understand. That's right. And I guess, you know, I've come to a place that, you know, I read The Shack. The Shack was a huge book. I don't know if you read it or if yes, aware I, of it. I did read it. As a matter of fact, I did a review of it on this show. So. And it was one of the books that probably spoke the most to me really? about... Yes, it helped me a lot just because, you know, God does love, and there was a line in that book because of that man's son, daughter being murdered yes. and how God said, I didn't come to justify it. I came to redeem it. I mean, I underlined that line mm. probably 15 times because even if God sat down with Steve and I and tried to explain the purpose of this, we as human parents would never understand that. You know, we have a limited perspective of eternity. We love our son. You know, we loved him with everything in us. He was part of us. Sure. We would never understand that. So I am, you know, I kind of hang my hat that God's going to redeem this in yeah. some way. You know, some of it we'll see on earth, but the full redemption will come in heaven. Yeah, that's very well put. I agree with that 100%. And in part two, you'll begin to see how God has begun already to redeem this heartbreaking event, not just in the lives of the Abadi family, but in the lives of so many other people as well. You'll not want to miss part two. If you're not subscribed to The LifeSpring Show, please do it now so you'll get it automatically downloaded to your computer. Now before I go, I want to play this next song for you. It's my friend Michelle Gold. Longtime LifeSpring listeners will remember her name because I interviewed her back on show number 157 in December of 2007. She and her husband Joe are amazing people, and Michelle is a gifted singer-songwriter. Here's Don't Miss Me Too Much. Seas and deeper and wider and longer than any. 
Comments? Write to me at steve at lifespringmedia.com. Leave a review at the iTunes podcast directory. Just search for Lifespring. 
or leave a comment on the show notes page at lifespringpodcast.com. Music on today's show was Bjork Ostrom with Long Drive Home and Michelle Gold with Don't Miss Me Too Much. Links will be on the show notes page. Until next time, may God bless you richly. I'm Steve Webb.